Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. The most recent episode of Tatter featured a conversation with Sarah Pierce, a policy analyst who studies immigration, which has been a hot topic lately, given the controversy surrounding the Trump administration's policies toward asylum seekers entering the U.S. at our southern border, especially those from Central America. Given the importance of these issues, I'm dedicating a second episode to the topic. For this episode, I spoke with Sarah Sherman Stokes, a graduate of Bates College, where I teach, and whose name one of my colleagues gave me. Sarah Sherman Stokes is Associate Director of the Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Program at Boston University Law School. She teaches and supervises law students, and they represent children and adults seeking asylum, facing deportation, people detained in jail, and people in removal proceedings with a focus on vulnerable populations, including survivors of torture and trauma. Having already learned a lot about policy from Sarah Pierce, in this conversation I learned more about what's happening on the ground and what people who want to help asylum seekers can do. This episode is titled, Unsafe Harbor. To give people some context, uh, despite the president's claim that there was uh, a, quote, uh, horrible law requiring the separation uh, of children from their adult family members once they had crossed the border, what's actually been going on is the administration's zero tolerance policy that Attorney General Sessions announced on April 6, under which anyone crossing the border illegally is prosecuted and because children can't be held in jails, the, they've been separated and turned over to the Office of Refugee Resettlement in the same way that unaccompanied minors who would arrive uh, at the border um, would uh, go into the ORR. So, this, so the, the decision to prosecute uh, is what's triggered those separations. I mean, before I move on, I want to confirm, is all of that correct? Well, um, sort of. So okay. one clarification I want to make, and there's been a lot of, I think, sort of um, disingenuous information provided by the administration, as you alluded to first, the idea that um, there's a horrible law, um, and in different iterations, it's been suggested that it was crafted by the Democrats or sort of, you know, put in place by Obama. Um, those things are not true, right? This is a policy choice that the president alone made. Uh, there were not large-scale family separations occurring before Trump made the decision to engage in this zero-tolerance policy. Um, and it's also important to point out that that actually, you know, I think, I think some advocates have unfortunately made this, you know, not, um, not out of a, a place of malice, but just sort of not knowing, um, this idea to concede that criminal prosecutions require family separation is actually erroneous. Hmm. Um, my colleagues down in Texas have pointed out that for the most part, when parents are criminally prosecuted, they aren't sent to the Bureau of Prisons or Marshall's custody. In fact, at least in Texas, 
parents are, are never sent to those facilities. They remain in CBP or Customs and Border Patrol facilities for several days while the criminal prosecution takes place, which is where their children can and also are being held. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, those criminal prosecutions usually go very quickly because people just plead guilty and then they're taken back to CBP. But in the meantime, their children are removed and taken away by ORR, as you mentioned. Um, so I, I just want to sort of clarify this erroneous presumption that, that parents have to be separated as a byproduct, as sort of a natural and logical byproduct of the criminal prosecution, which they do not. Um, and, and moreover, this idea that parents must be criminally prosecuted is completely false. Um, it's always been a matter of discretion, just like any law enforcement is a matter of discretion. And in the past, it's been exercised uh, very, very infrequently, if at all, and focused on people who may have long criminal records or who have multiple re- unlawful entries. Um, but in this case, the vast majority of these parents are first-time unlawful entrants who are bona fide refugees seeking asylum. And in those cases, um, I've been of the impression that the prosecution itself is a misdemeanor. I wonder if you can, if you can speak about that. And I'm wondering, are there any circumstances under which the mere act of illegal entry is itself a felony? Um, depending on uh, whether they're possibly depending on whether it's um, a repeat, someone who's a repeat offender, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but a first time unlawful entry is a misdemeanor. Um, and I can assure you that there are bigger fish to fry at the border sure. um, than you know parents who are simply seeking asylum and protection for themselves and their children. Um, so to expend so many resources prosecuting these parents seems like, frankly, I mean, just sort of from a law enforcement perspective, um, seems like poor decision making and poor policy. Well, it's very much news to me that the separation is not a necessary byproduct of the prosecution because I've heard that a lot in the popular yeah. press. So basically from, from what I hear from colleagues on the border and there are, I, I do just want to say, you know, there are unbelievable advocates and attorneys on the border who are in the trenches doing this work day in and day out. Um, and uh, who don't have, you know, they don't have the time to do sort of podcasts and kind of broadcast their message because they're just sort of in the work um, you know, doing doing unbelievable advocacy, but what they report is um, that at least in Texas, children are briefly, uh, sorry, parents, excuse me, are briefly called into federal court to plead on this criminal misdemeanor charge, and while they're there, um, their kids get taken to ORR. Uh, when their kids had been held with them in the CBP facility and could continue to be held with them in the CBP facility, because it's also worth mentioning that these parents usually get time served. Mm-hmm. Um, this is such an inconsequential misdemeanor uh, for first-time unlawful entrants. They're not, they're not getting criminal sentences. They're getting time served, and it's over within a matter of days, um, the whole proceeding. In an article I saw in the New York Times recently, it was reported that parents in these situations can plead to a misdemeanor, misdemeanor charge of illegal entry and... They often do so and accept expedited removal in hopes of being reunited with their children. But the children, once they've been separated, are already on a separate legal track that takes longer. Is that correct or do I have that wrong too? Yeah. So, so yeah, one, one thing I want to sort of, um, sort of clarify is, 
Another concern with how this process is playing out is that it truncates the full and fair proceeding that each asylum applicant is entitled to, um, that there is asylum seekers are entitled to have their day in court. They're entitled to present their claims for relief um, before a judge and have you know, a, a decision, an adjudication on the merits of that case. And when people accept expedited removal, they're doing so under pressure um, with the belief that maybe they'll see their children again more quickly, with the belief that maybe they can come back again and, tr- and try a second time. Those things seem to both be false. Um, so people are set up really to be quickly returned to the persecution they've just fled um, for fear of being in jail, for fear of being separated from their children, which I think is really insidious and you know, a total affront to the due process rights that all people have in this country, regardless of your immigration status. When you refer to the day in court, you're referring to something separate from the prosecution. You're referring to coming before an immigration judge? That's correct. So the criminal prosecution takes place um, in a criminal court, and I'm referring to having a chance to make out a claim for relief under our asi- under our immigration laws. Uh, most people at the border are making claims for asylum or other kinds of protection in this country, and the process for that is typically to first pass through what's called a credible fear interview yep. um, with an asylum officer, where you make out uh, a claim for relief, and an officer determines whether or not your fear is credible. Um, if it is, then you get to sort of, uh, you know, pass go and have your day in court. I just, I just want to sort of point out that this, this isn't happening in a vacuum. Um, this is part of a legacy, in particular, of the way that we've treated Central American asylum seekers. Yep. Um, so, if you go back to the 80s and the 90s, there were huge class action lawsuits. Um, around the ways we treated Central American asylum seekers, people who were fleeing the civil wars in Central America and who came to the United States and were pressured into accepting expedited removal and voluntary departure, so-called voluntary departure, uh, held in abysmal conditions in, faci- in detention facilities so that they would give up their claims for asylum and then return to the site of their persecution. Um, and there was a huge settlement uh, called the ABC, or American Baptist Churches, settlement agreement um, that basically acknowledged that there had been um, outright discrimination against Central American asylum seekers, that grant rates for asylum seekers from Central America were 2 and 3%, whereas if you looked at other countries, Iran, Poland, uh, mostly people fleeing communism, um, you saw grant rates of upwards of 40%. Is the Times correct that because the ch- the children who have been separated are placed onto a separate track where the, the kids can't uh, be subjected to, to expedited re- removal, that as a consequence, the parents may be deported without their children. That's correct, that parents may be deported without their children. Absolutely. How, lo- how long typically will it, does it, has it taken for children to actually go through their uh, uh, hearing before an immigration judge? Right. So proceedings in immigration court can take quite a while. Um, If a child is seeking asylum, that can take months or even years, depending on whether or not there are appeals. Um, So the process to seek permanent uh, lawful immigration status can be very lengthy. Uh, I have had clients fighting for months or years to get that status. Um, In terms of how long it's taking parents and children to be reunited, um, I don't have an answer to that because it seems that, at least as of today, the reunification of parents and children has been largely unsuccessful. Um, you know, many parents um, 
were given, if they were given anything, they were given a flyer with a 1-800 number. Um, a colleague of mine said that when she called that number trying to help a client of hers find uh, their child, she was told only, well, we know your, your child's in the United States, um, which is obviously a, you know, a completely unsatisfactory answer. Um, and it, it doesn't seem like the administration has ever had a real sort of robust plan for reunifying these kids and their parents. They didn't take information on the front end that would have helped identify who belongs to who uh, on the back end. So what does the executive order that the president just signed actually do? <laughs> That's a great question. So first of all, it's um, interestingly, the executive order that he signed is responding to a crisis of his own making, um, which is totally bizarre. Um, so you have, you know, the separation of more than 2,300 children from their parents, um, which resulted obviously in, you know, enormous public outrage a national and international outrage. Um, then you have the president blaming the Democrats. Then you have the president um, saying, well, actually the president's press secretary on Monday saying Congress alone can fix this. We can't do anything. And then two days later, you have the president signing this executive orders. Here I am coming to the rescue of right. my own, of the crisis of my own creation. Um, I'm going to end family separation. But the thing is that the executive order doesn't actually end family separation. There's nothing in the executive order that forbids family separation from happening now or in the future. In fact, there's a carve out that states if it's not in the best interest of the child to be with their parents, the child can be taken away. We don't know what that means. The child standard is a standard from family law and child welfare, and, and that's all well and good, but it's not typically the standard for separating children and parents. That standard is typically about abuse or neglect. Um, and this falls short of that. So we're not sure what that's going to look like. Um, the, the order also calls on Congress to act, basically. And um, indeed, there's legislation working through Congress that would move to amend or do away with the Flores Agreement of 1997, which put a limit on how long children can be held in detention. Because I believe that's the administration's ultimate goal, which is to create... Um, or rather, it is to normalize family detention and to make it a permanent fixture or feature even of our immigration system. If, if, if you're correct that that's their goal, do you think that it's for deterrent purposes, to, to deter others from coming? Um, interestingly, what we're seeing the president do now, which is trying to replace family separation with family detention or indefinite family detention, he's actually asking courts to allow him to do what Obama wasn't allowed to do. And this relates to your comment about deterrence, because uh, in 2014, the Obama administration, um, responding to a large number of Central American migrants coming to the United States, opened family detention centers at Carnes and Dilly in Texas. And you know, and this is falling on the heels of the, the Hutto facility, which was basically a prison painted pink inside. Um, they're, they're detention facilities, you know, for all intents and purposes. Um, and uh, I think I heard somebody refer to it as an Econo Lodge that you can't leave, but it's it's much worse than that. Um, in 2014, when President Obama did that, the court stepped in and said, actually, the Flores Settlement of 1997 says that children must be released from custody without unnecessary delay, or if there's no suitable placement for them, like with a family member, then they must be held in the least restrictive setting. And holding them in these detention facilities, even with their parents, for more than 20 days is a violation of that agreement. And now Trump, you know, he's had his sights set on Flores for a long time, or at least those in his administration have. Um, 
And so now he's asking Congress to do away with Flores, to allow him to do what Obama was foreclosed from doing. I often hear, or when I make the mistake of going onto Twitter, I see uh, so-called conservatives saying something to the effect of, well, if the parents had just not come here, then they wouldn't be in this situation. And I, I think that such comments arise from the fact that the circumstances motivating uh parents to make this trek are nothing more than abstractions to a lot of us in the U.S. I wonder if you're in a position to offer any comments that might make uh, some of the circumstances that motivate the journey more concrete for us. Absolutely. I'm happy to share a couple stories of my clients who have fled um, really devastating and protracted violence in their home countries. Um, and who would not have made the trip but for that violence. They, they don't come here on a whim. Um, they don't sort of wake up one day and decide, I'm going to make the treacherous journey to the United States. It's both dangerous and costly, but hey, why not? Um, I think you know Trump yesterday in a press conference um, said that walking through Mexico for a migrant was like walking through Central Park. Um, I'm pretty sure none of my clients have ever been to Central Park. Um, because they're, you know, working three jobs and supporting their families. Um, and I know that walking through Mexico was not like walking through Central Park for them. Um, they, my clients faced assault, extortion, you know, rape, all kinds of atrocities trying to get to the United States after having fled atrocities in their home countries. Um, so, for example, I have clients, children, um, siblings, whose both of their parents were murdered by gang members in their home country. Their older sister then brought them to the United States when they started receiving personal threats and um, and people coming to their door looking for them. I'm not sure what other choice she had. Uh, they tried to relocate within their home country, and the gangs found them. There was literally nothing else they could have done. They watched one of my clients watched her her mother uh, die in front of her uh, at a very young age. Um, I'm not sure that any of us that have children, or even those of us that don't have children, could imagine you know, doing anything less than escaping that kind of violence. Um, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I, you know, would walk through fire to protect mm -hmm. them. Um, and I'm sure many parents, regardless of sort of where they fall on the political spectrum, would agree with that. Um, I have other clients uh, who, I have a client who is a survivor of domestic violence, you know, sort of very years of domestic violence at the hands of her partner and the father of her daughter. Um, he was physically, sexually, and emotionally abusive. Um, he abused her in front of their child. She fled for her life, uh, quite literally. Um, the authorities could not help her when she went to the police. The police told her, this is a private matter. This is a family matter. We won't get involved. She actually she had no one to turn to. There was no legal protection in her country. She couldn't depend on the authorities to protect her. Um, and so she had no choice but to flee to protect her life and the life of her child. Those are the kinds of literal life and death decisions that our clients are making on a daily basis. I could imagine that even if someone is moved by those stories, they still might argue that 
we in the U.S. simply don't have the capacity, the resources to accommodate the number of people seeking asylum who have fled El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, the Honduras. Would you have a response to such a concern or even an objection? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, it, it, it opens up a bigger conversation about the way we allocate resources in this country. Um, and also, um, I think it opens up a, a much larger conversation about what role we may have played in the creation of violence in Central America, which I know is a, you know, a, a, um, maybe a conversation people aren't wanting to have, but I think it's it's extremely relevant. Um, we were funding dictatorships and militaries and civil wars across Central America during the 80s and 90s. Um, and we have since trained police there in paramilitary tactics. Um, we have deported uh, many people there who became, became gang members in the United States, um, in California, uh, and then we sent them home. To, we, we exported MS-13 from the United States to El Salvador. Um, and so we are not, our hands are not clean in this, in this situation. And I think it's really important to think about what role we have played. And, you know, when you create the peril, you have a duty. <laughs> There's a duty that arises out of that, at least, you know, under, under tort law, which um, I know is a little abstract. But I, I also think, you know, we can have a conversation about how we allocate the resources that we have that perhaps we do have a, you know, a moral and a legal obligation to provide safe harbor for people um, from other countries who are fleeing persecution and harm. Uh, we, we certainly do have obligations under U.S. law and under international law. We've signed on to treaties that obligate us to protect people who are bona fide refugees, as many, many of these people are. The UNHCR interviewed many of these families and found that over two-thirds of them met the definition of a refugee under international law. Uh, these are people who are entitled to protection. So in part of your answer, unless I heard you incorrectly, you said that we exported MS-13? <laughs> well, um, so the history of MS-13, sort of in a, in a snapshot, um, it was largely created um, in California on the West Coast. Um, we had all these Central American young people dropped into you know, city neighborhoods in California. Uh, there were U.S. gangs there. They sort of had to, you know, um, band together to protect themselves. And that's where Central American gangs were born. Um, and then those people ended up in jail in California and on the West Coast and then were deported as a result of being convicted of crimes here. Um, and and that's, that's a highlights real version of, of how MS-13 was created. So... Shifting gears, I've, I've seen you write about the workload that the immigration judges carry. I wonder if you could speak briefly about that, and in so doing, speak to the implications that that workload has for the ability of non-citizens appearing before the judges to be treated fairly. Absolutely. So... Uh, as of right now, there are over 714,000 cases pending in immigration courts nationwide. Uh, so it's an unbelievably large backlog of cases. 
uh, for our immigration courts to handle. We also at the same time have directives from the attorney general from Sessions, um, basically telling immigration judges, you have a quota. There are, you know, here's a number of cases you have to hit every year, and I want you moving more quickly, and I want you expediting cases, and I want you acting on cases as quickly as possible. There's, a, there's an immigration judge who very famously said that immigration courts um, are basically uh, judges, you know, doing death penalty cases in traffic court. And I can't think of a more apt description. You know, you're asking judges to make life or death, death decisions uh, in courts that don't have a lot of resources, where there isn't a lot of time, where people don't have lawyers unless they can afford them, which many of them can't. Um, and you're asking people to navigate this complex legal bureaucracy in a language they may not understand um, in a system of laws that is incredibly sort of um, complex. And so, I, you know, I think all of us as advocates are, are very concerned about the pressure this is going to put on immigration judges to quickly adjudicate cases without, you know, giving people a full and fair day in court, which is what they deserve and what they're entitled to under the law. And to be clear, when you, when this judge referred to these as life or death decisions, I assume the, the implication is that if a judge gets it wrong and rejects a claim of asylum, that could effectively be a death sentence for that person? That's correct. I recall seeing a letter that Susan Collins, uh, our senior senator here in Maine, uh, reportedly sent out to constituents who had written to her with questions about the president's immigration policy. And at one point, Senator Collins, uh, if this letter is indeed legitimate, my source for this letter is Topher Spiro at the Center for American Progress. Senator Collins referred to these individuals coming from Central America seeking a better life. And that seems to downplay what's at stake. That makes it sound almost as if it's a merely economic uh, motive seeking, say, a more comfortable life. It sounds like for many of these individuals, they're attempting to save their lives. Uh, yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think the narrative that many in the administration and, and on the right and others are, are trying to advance, you know, suggests that these are economic migrants. And again, this has echoes of um, all of the rhetoric in the 80s and early 90s around Central American migrants who were fleeing civil war in their countries. They were referred to repeatedly by members of Congress as economic migrants, people that didn't have bona fide claims for relief. Um, and we know that they did, and as do the migrants of today. As I said earlier, they're not leaving on a whim. They're not leaving because they simply want a better job or a nicer home. Um, they're leaving to save their lives and the lives of their children. And that's why this policy cannot work as a deterrent, uh, because you can't deter people who are fleeing for their lives. I want to ask you to comment on another policy issue that's been raised by the administration, and in particular by Attorney General Sessions, who recently indicated that domestic violence should not be, in and of itself, sufficient grounds for a claim of asylum, which you Give me your reaction to his thoughts on policy there. Yes. So you're correct that the attorney general in a decision uh, called Matter of AB, AB are the initials of the woman uh, whose case is involved, um, 
certified a case to himself. He basically snatched a case out of the hands of the normal judicial process and said, I want to decide this case. I don't want you, uh, you know, Board of Immigration Appeals or immigration judge to decide this case. I want to decide it. Um, And he made a decision that sets us back about 20 years in terms of protecting survivors of domestic violence and potentially survivors of gang violence and other violence that is committed by private non-state actors. Um, And uh, sort of, as I mentioned, there had been about 20 years of litigation leading up to a decision matter of ARCG in which the Board of Immigration Appeals found that survivors of domestic violence were entitled to asylum and protection in this country. Um, In fact, it was such a robust decision that the Department of Homeland Security, law enforcement agencies, the judge, and the private bar all agreed that this was the right result. Um, And and they never agree on anything. (laughs) So the idea that they all came together and said this is the correct result is pretty amazing. And then to have just a few years later sessions undo that decision, I mean, he he actually reversed that decision, um, is pretty galling and pretty unbelievable. Um, And I think it this is another example of one of the insidious things that this administration is doing, which is to systematically chip away at the asylum system to make us believe that asylum is a loophole, that people aren't actually entitled to asylum, um, that this is not, you know, relief that is enshrined under our laws domestically and to which we're obligated internationally. Um, And that's all wrong, Um, but it certainly seems to try to be the image they're projecting. Suppose someone comes to you and says, I am committed to doing more than I am to, or I'm doing nothing, but I want to do something to help unaccompanied minors seeking asylum or these families where the head of household has come seeking asylum for the family and the children have been separated. Do you have any advice on what people who want to be helpful can do? Sure, absolutely. And I I will say, I think it's amazing the sort of outpouring of, um, you know, uh, uh, support, financial support, um, you know, people are very moved to action. And I think it's um, wonderful. Um, I do want to point out that this is not the first time we've seen family detention, but it was happening under the Obama administration. And I think it's important that we be honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um because I don't, you know, it's part of a pattern and it's not going away. And so we have to remain vigilant and continue to push back against the normalization of this. Um, That being said, um, I think there are a number of things people can do. Um, So if if you're not a lawyer, I think uh, you can certainly donate. Um, There are a lot of fabulous, fabulous organizations on the ground doing this work work day in and day out. I can't name them all, but I'll name just a few. Um, RAICES, R-A-I-C-E-S, and the RAICES Bond Fund. If parents can get bonded out of custody, it's much easier for them to be reunited with their children. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Florence Project in Arizona does this work day in and day out with children and adults. They're amazing. There's also an organization called Al Otro Lado, A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. They do great cross-border work between Mexico and Texas to try to reunify families. Um, There's also an organization in Pennsylvania called Aldea, A-L-D-E-A, P-J-C, They've been working in the Burks Family Detention Center for years, um, and you know they're not working with folks along the border, but they are, are working to reunite families that have been separated by this policy. There, there are too many others to name. In, in Maine, there's a fabulous organization called ILAC that mm-hmm. does immigration work and has been doing so for years. Uh, you know, Families are also separated by immigration policy just as a general matter. I have clients who are detained while their kids are at home. Um, you know, that are missing birthdays and missing Christmases and missing Halloweens uh, that has nothing to do with 
Trump's policy per se, but has everything to do with the way that we think about immigration in this country and our belief that detention is the only way that we can keep this country safe, which is which is not the case. Um, so in addition to giving money, um, there are big protests Saturday, June 30th. Um, there are rallies, I believe, uh, in D.C. and all over the country. Additionally, you can call your congresspeople. Um, people can look online. There are sample scripts, uh, places to go and enter your zip code and, and call your reps and tell them that you're concerned about uh, the way we're treating kids and families at the border. You can also look at what's happening locally. Uh, you know, different communities will be receiving parents and children and need help reunifying them. You know, New York just received, I think, hundreds of children um, that were shipped up from the border. Uh, and so other communities are going to be finding that, too. If you speak another language, reach out to your uh, local nonprofit organization that's doing immigration work and find out if you can provide language services. Um, I think that's always fabulous. We'll always feel very lucky to have uh, folks volunteer as interpreters. And, you know, continue to, to listen to the news. Don't turn away. Um, it, it's really hard to watch a lot of this unfold, but we can't look away. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Sarah Sherman Stokes for taking the time to talk with me and for enlightening me, and I hope enlightening you as well. To see links to the organizations to which she referred at the end of the episode, as well as the link for the Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Program at the Boston University School of Law, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find this episode, which again is titled Unsafe Harbor. If you use Twitter, please follow Tatter. The handle is at Tatter underscore rags. And if you listen to Tatter on iTunes, please give it a review as the feedback is helpful to me and to other potential listeners. Finally, if you find Tatter engaging and if you appreciate the time spent making the episodes, for example, I'm finishing this one at about 11 p.m. on a Friday night, then please visit the Patreon page for Tatter and sign up for a monthly pledge. The levels start at just $3 per month. Think of it as buying me a beer once a month, or at $3, maybe just buying me a really nice cup of coffee. Either way, I'd be grateful, and that beverage will come in handy when I'm working on a future episode. Note also that some of the privileges of pledging include getting to suggest and occasionally vote on topics for future episodes, as well as possible guests. So check it all out at patreon.com slash tatter. Thanks in advance for any support you can offer. Even more importantly, thanks for listening to this episode, and be well. <laughs>